0: The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. Church, how are we this morning? Doing well? Last week I asked the question and literally there was not even movement or a response of any kind. So I'm going to ask it again. Maybe we can get in a rhythm here. How are we doing this morning? Yeah. all right, I'll take it, I'll take it. Well, um, we this morning have reached a finish line, and I'm both excited and also sad. We've reached the finish line of our book here of an amazing letter, the book of Titus. We get to, we get to draw it to a close. Before we do that, though, I want to give you a brief kind of heads up on where we're heading. Um, where we're going. Next week, can you believe it? Thanksgiving is here, which is wild to me. Uh, Next week, we are going to be in a text in Philippians that um, calls us to lay down our anxiety and instead pursue thankfulness. It's a timely message. We're going to be there next week. I'm excited for that. Uh, More than that, one of our new elders, uh, Herb, uh, is going to be preaching the word next week, and I cannot wait for that. If you know Herb, you know you just feel that he's a preacher. I can't wait. It's gonna be it's gonna be great. Um, after that, believe it or not, we are heading into Advent, where uh, again I just can't believe we're already here, but where we turn our hearts to the hope. <laughs> The joy, the peace, the love, ultimately on our eager expectation of the arrival of Jesus. That's where we're, we're going. I cannot wait for that. And uh, one more thing. I do want to let the cat out of the bag. Uh, oh, I can't wait for this. 2020 is going to be the year of Romans. As a church, we are going to be stepping into the book of Romans. I have no intent. There's no way we're going to be able to finish it. In 2020, because we want to walk through this book, verse by verse, through Romans. Um, this is a foundational book. Honestly, we've been waiting and praying. God, is it time? God, is it time? Is it time to go to Romans? And I feel, we feel, our elders feel like now is the time. So we're going to be turning into this book in in uh, 2020. We're going to be walking through it. We have a fun road ahead. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. But. I get ahead of myself because today we get the opportunity to bring Titus to a close. This book has been timely. It has been rich. Um, What does the Christian life look like? Yes, a better question is what should the Christian life look like? Um, We are a holy, we are a set-apart people, so what does that look like when our values are not their values, when The things that we believe and proclaim are rejected. What does it look like to be in this world but not of it? That is what Titus has been setting before us. Uh, Last Wednesday, uh, we got back from our elder retreat that we take once a year. Um, And uh, you know what I was able to see? Titus. Titus being lived out. Because as we talked about, leadership matters. And as we talked about, leadership in the church matters greatly. So Paul sets out for us what leadership in the church should look like. So we saw in chapter 1, these men are called to both protect and proclaim the gospel. They're called to lead in their homes, and their families. They're called to set the pace of disciple-making in the church. And God has richly blessed our church. Last week, um, in the last couple weeks, we have, members have voted to affirm um, our next elders, and we were able to see this in action, church. I wanted to point this out because we are so blessed, and because for me, maybe I just geek out about this kind of thing, but even in the simple process of affirming our next elders, we are engaging in doing the same very thing that the early church was doing, the same thing that the church has been doing for thousands of years. We are linking ourselves to the timeless truth of God and the plan of God for his church, even in the affirmation of our elders. Honestly, it is incredible. It gives me a lot of confidence. I want to say this. The Christ, Scripture says, is building his church, is building his church, and Scripture tells us how he's doing it, and by the way, the the church that he is building, Scripture says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will stand and endure, and as crazy as this may sound, as we voted the last couple weeks and we affirmed these men, I was reminded of this simple fact that Christ is building his church. Christ is building his church. But as we saw in Titus, it's not only a book written to elders. Um, what, we, uh, what we talked about is we saw a shift in chapter two. And one of the ways we think about Titus in a big picture overview chapter one deals with leadership in the church, chapter two deals with leadership in the church and in the home, chapter three deals with leadership in the church, in the home, and in the community a way to approach this book, and right now we are coming up on the finish line. In the last couple weeks, as we were in chapter 3, chapter 3 is kind of a chapter of reminders. Remind them of this, remind them of that, remind them of this. Um, all these reminders that, that Paul gives, and as I talked about, my, like 90% of my job as a gospel preacher, if I'm going to be a faithful gospel preacher, is simply reminding It's not coming up with new or novel things. Nope, it is drawing us continually back to the truth of God. We who are prone to wonder, we who are prone to forget and prone to distraction, to bring us back, to come back. And so Paul tries to do that. In the first two verses of chapter 3, we see a ton of practical reminders. We see, remind them to submit to authorities, to be obedient. Remind them to not slander, to be gentle, to not argue or quarrel. Remind them to be humble and to be courteous toward all and to be ready for each and every good work. Remind them. And then last week, Paul shifts and gives us foundational reminders. He says, remind them of the bad news, that they were once dead and and lost and foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, malice, envy, hatred. Remind them of who they once were and then remind them of who they are now in Christ. Remind them that they are saved by grace, renewed, regenerated, heirs of hope through Jesus Christ. Remind them. And church, that gets us to our finish line where Paul now is going to give us two final instructions. Two final instructions, commands to us. So let's jump in. Let's get to work. Uh, The first one, I'm just going to let it all out, cat out of the bag, is insist. Insist. Paul says, verse 8 of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people in other words all the things that i have told you all of the things that i have set before you insist on them they are good they are excellent they are profitable they are trustworthy insist on them your translation might say to speak confidently or to even I saw one that says stress these things the command says look the word of god is trustworthy the commands are true and sure and because of that we can proclaim it with confidence insist insist i'm reminded of one of the longest chapter in all of your bible psalm 119 which speaks basically entirely to this The whole chapter is dead. The Word of God, commands of God, they are true, forever true, trustworthy. Verse 160, I told you it was long. Verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And here in our text in Titus, Paul is encouraging Titus, encouraging us Encouraging everyone who proclaims the Word of God to speak with confidence, to insist. Now, I want us to think about this for just a moment. Um, last week, we talked real briefly about the different voices that we face in our culture. So many different opinions, contradictory opinions. Post anything online, you'll see contradictory opinions. We live in this world, in this postmodern world, where truth is in the eye of the beholder, where it's relative, it's dependent on the person. What's true for you is true for you. It's true for me. It's true for me. And it's like our example last week. I probably offended you uh, last week. I'll do it again this week. Um, when we talked about dieting, um, we can treat our religion like we treat our diet. Uh, Tree Jesus like we are, you know, paleo or vegan or keto or wherever. I'm not going to list them like I did last week because I just feel like that got me in more trouble. Um, <laughs> whatever you are, wherever we are, um, we find our diet. However, we don't want to be like those people who just push our diet on other people. Like, that's obnoxious and. You know, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. I'm not going to diet evangelize you. Now, all of us appreciate you not diet evangelizing us. True. Um, But Jesus is not like your diet. And he's not like your preferences. Jesus is more like this like a dying person. Who is dying of a disease, which Jesus is the medicine, the cure, the reverse, to save them from life or from death to life. That's a different thing because it's no longer about a preference, uh, it's about life, death, salvation. It's a different thing. This is why we evangelize, by the way. We tell people about the truth of the gospel. And sometimes I think we struggle in this. We struggle to share our faith. We struggle to share our faith because we think of it like our preferred diet. Not like a known and proven and trustworthy medicine that will literally save the life of a dying person. What I mean by this is that when Jesus is an option or a preference, we do not insist. We may suggest... (laughs) But we don't insist. When evangelism is like diet evangelism, no one loves that. And no one wants to be seen like that. But when Jesus, when the gospel of Christ, the word of God, when what is good and excellent and trustworthy and true, leading to life and life eternally, life abundantly, when the gospel of Christ is literal salvation from death, hell, and the grave, It's no longer like diet evangelism, but more like a person who found the antidote and with great passion is giving it to every single person around them. That's a very different thing. And church, that causes us to insist To insist. And why? Because we insist because it's true, it's good, it's excellent, it's trustworthy. And in this, there is life and there is healing. We insist, not suggest, not recommend. We insist, not hint at, not insinuate. We insist, not imply, not allude to. We insist, we speak with confidence. Church, insist on these things. Do you insist? And I don't want to give you the easy way out. How do you insist? When do you insist? This is not an insisting in theory. As a gospel preacher, my job is to insist. It is. It's to faithfully and passionately insist on the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the truth of salvation in Christ. My calling is to insist, but that calling is not mine alone. It is not. Most likely there are Christians in your life right now who are hurting, who are doubting, who are struggling, who are struggling with sin. With discouragement, most likely there are non Christians in your life who are hurting, who are lost, who are deceived. To go back to our analogy, most likely there are people around you who are sick, who are dying. As you think about these people in your life, God has placed you right where you are for a reason. To insist. To insist on the gospel. To insist on the truth of God. To not be ashamed. To not be unsure. But to speak with loving confidence. You are placed by God. Sovereignly by God. To insist. I can't insist for you. We can't insist for you. We are called to insist together. We're called to do this so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist, because these things are excellent and profitable for people. The first instruction we are given as Paul closes this letter is to take all of the claims, the truth of the gospel, to take all the reminders the commands of God, and to proclaim them boldly, to speak them confidently, to insist, insist on the gospel. But Paul doesn't leave us here. He gives us a second command. The first, he says, is to insist. The second, he says, is to avoid. Avoid. Uh, One thing I I want to just share before we get into this, Um, I know that that Many people who have been in the church for any amount of time um, have seen some kind of division in some way or another. Um, The truth is, this is going to shock you the church is full of broken people. What? The church is full of broken people who have been saved by grace. The church is a collection of people. Get this distinction who are being perfected That's true. But who have not been made perfect quite yet? But we are being made like Christ each and every day, but we're not perfect yet, and because of that, we are a collection of broken people. The next portion of our text deals with a a painful topic. Um that will touch many of us. And although this was written to the ancient church of Crete, wow, it is so applicable. Whatever your background, what you have come through, this is God's word to us as his people, as his church. And I pray that it will meet us right where we are because his word is good, excellent, profitable, profitable. This is Christ's desire for us, our final instruction of this letter. First is to insist. Second is to avoid. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Just for a little context here, um, the group of people who Paul has in mind, uh, we've talked about them before, a group of Judaizers, called the circumcision party. We've talked about these guys before, Um, but these are the people, they were coming out of Judaism, and they were using certain parts of the law as a way to kind of set themselves up a little bit higher than the rest of the people. It's a simplified way of looking at it, but that's what was going on. They were saying, look at us, and it's a way of um, stirring up division, stirring up division, provoking foolish controversies, unneeded ones, unneeded division in the church, dissensions, genealogies, the text said. And I'm reminded, if you remember, when we, when we looked at the first part of chapter 3, Paul gives us those reminders, and, and one of them was, speak no evil of anyone, don't slander anyone, and the second that I think of right away is to avoid quarreling or arguing. And if you remember that, Why was it so hard to do this? Why is that so hard? Well, we talked about the fact that many of us, most of us, are drawn to a good old-fashioned argument. It's kind of like a spectator sport. We enjoy a little drama. It's like clickbait for us on our feeds. Ooh, that's good. Click, right? And although we may not admit it, we get kind of a strange amusement, Um. From getting bent out of shape. We kind of get this weird thing of texting or calling a friend and saying, you won't believe what they did. Right? There's, there's something there, it's like we get bored and we crave a good argument. I know none of you are like that, but I think we've all met. <laughs> we've all met the person. And if we're honest, we might be one of those people that drama just follows. Um Where you go, drama happens. Your office, your school, your church, your community group, drama just goes and follows you. If that's you, if you're prone to this, hear me, there is grace in Jesus Christ for you. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ for you. But if that's you, if you're prone to this, Paul is clear, we can't continue in this. We must avoid this. We must avoid this. There is freedom and rest from that in Christ. And this is why we talked about in verses one and two Paul gives us these powerful reminders. Remind them, they're going to forget this. Remind them. And here in our text, Paul is addressing the circumcision party directly. Paul is calling the church to avoid getting sucked into that. Avoid that. Avoid getting drawn into that because, as Paul says, it's unprofitable and worthless. And would you just notice the beautiful contrast? In verse 8, the way of Christ, is, is, Paul says, is excellent and profitable. The next verse, verse 9, the foolish controversies are, in verse 9, unprofitable and worthless. Paul uses here a strong language of opposites. He says, the way of Christ is excellent. It is profitable, so insist. The way of division is unprofitable. It is worthless, so avoid. Insist and avoid. Insist on the truth of the gospel. Avoid division. And this is serious in the life of a church. This is serious. In the division seeks to undermine the life and the ministry of any and every church to stall the mission, to cause hurt, to cause pain. I started off by talking about the the fact that Jesus says, "I'm building my church, and the gates of hell they're not going to prevail against. The church will stand. The church will endure." In light of that, though, can we talk about one of the enemy's most profound and powerful tools? So, the gates of hell won't prevail. Amen to that. But the enemy can and certainly does seek to hurt, slow, and come against the church. And he often does this from within through division. Through division. Um, Honestly, in seminary, Uh, I was not told this explicitly. I really wasn't. I don't want to put down my seminary, okay? I was, no professor told me this. But I think, I I know, I had this thought that if as a pastor, uh, a future planter, if I proclaim the word of God faithfully, I don't stray from it, I stand on it, I rightly divide the word, proclaim it boldly, and if I love people with all my heart, with all my heart, that Christ is going to build the church, that things are going to go great, and that there won't be any problems. (laughs) But you know what, as I think about this? Church, I believe it is exactly the churches who proclaim the word of God faithfully, who stand on it boldly and who, as imperfect as we are, try to love people with all of our hearts. I believe it is exactly those churches who are targeted by our enemy. Now, yes, Christ is building his church. We know this to be true, though. Just like our personal lives Here's the truth. God often uses and allows the trials for his glory and our good. In other words, the enemy doesn't want to see the church remain unified. Are you kidding me? No. The enemy does not want to see the church remain faithful to the truth of God, to love each other well. The enemy does not want us to remember the things that Paul has been reminding us. The enemy wants us to wants you to forget the bad news. He wants you to forget the good news. He wants you to go along just living your life as you see fit. The enemy is after the church. Now, he won't win. Spoiler alert, he will not win. He won't win, but he seeks to, at the very least, to hurt and slow down the mission. One of the enemy's top attack plans is division. If he can only divide us and set us against each other, whether it be division based on race and ethnicity, as our text says, genealogies, whether it be foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels, the enemy seeks to divide the church. Um, We mentioned a few weeks ago that in some really profound way, the most countercultural, world-changing thing that we as the body of Christ could do is, as simple as this sounds, to, one, remove slander from our life, and two, no longer engage in pointless arguments. That if, 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 imagine if every person who claims to follow Jesus tomorrow, tomorrow, The 18th of November says, no more slander, we're done. No more arguments, we're done. In the name of Jesus, we no longer slander others in person or online. We no longer engage in pointless arguments, again, in person or online. And we do it all boldly in the name of Jesus. That would change the world. I would change the world. But you know what? It would do more than just change the world. It would change the church. It would impact the church. It would literally take away one of our enemy's favorite tools of destruction. Just render it useless. One of the enemy's top plans, say it again, is to stir up division, to cause it. And most of the time over secondary things, even better. But his plan of attack is to... Bring division into the church. Church, we're a young church and we have already walked through this, fought against this. Um, No church is exempt from this. Not one church is exempt from this because God's plan is for us to be united in Christ, the enemy's plan is for us to be divided, and that division can be painful. So, Paul says, insist on the truth, insist on the gospel. And avoid division. Let's talk about avoid real quick. Um, The word avoid is an active word. It's a command that actually requires you to do something. Um, It's something we're called to actively do. So how do we avoid that kind of division? Um, To answer this, I, I want us to think about division as though it were a wildfire. Um, A dangerous, terrible, nasty wildfire. Um, The word avoid, the word avoid here means three things. One, that we don't fuel it. Two, that we don't fan it. And three, that we don't warm our hands by it. To avoid means that we don't fuel it, we don't fan it, we don't warm our hands by it. Fueling Means that we contribute, we uh, we contribute, we engage, we speak into it. That's fueling the fire of division. Um, if you look back on your life, by the way, and you notice, my goodness, I'm always at the center of controversy, always at the center of division. Why is that? There's there might be a reality that your temptation is to fuel. God's word's gonna cause us to get real real this morning. That's fueling, fanning. Fanning is a little different. Um, fanning means we, we, we listen. We don't directly contribute to the thing. We're not tossing wood in it, gasoline in it. Um, we certainly don't stop it, though. We talk about the drama. We talk about it with others in a way that spreads. It's not that we're the one slandering. It's not that we're the one um, arguing. But we give it legs, we fan its flame, and we increase its audience. Whew. Fanning. Fanning. Um, if you look back on your life, by the way, and you notice, it's not that I'm the center of controversy all the time, but man, I'm around it a lot. It feels like I'm always kind of in the mix somehow. Your temptation might be towards fanning. The third thing, and this one is hard, because I think many of us feel this, or have felt this at one time. It's not that we're fuelers. it's not even that we're fanners. But, man, to just Warm your hands. Just warm your hands a bit. This is our temptation to place ourselves in close proximity toward it, to be around it. It's not that we're adding. It's not that we're fanning. It's not that we're taking and division to other people, helping it spread. We're just there. We have an ear. We're giving it an audience. And I think if we're honest, we have been here. We have have been here. We have faced these temptations to fuel, to fan, and to warm our hands. But Paul's command here is not to fuel, it's not to fan, it's not to warm our hands. It is specifically and actively to avoid. To avoid. And Paul doesn't end here because it's not only avoid division, but now Paul speaks about the one who intentionally stirs up that division in the church. It's not only division, but now Paul is addressing the one dividing. Paul says avoid the division and avoid the divider. We don't know, context, if Paul had some you know, people in mind when he wrote this in the ancient Crete church that he didn't drop their names. We don't know. But what we do know is that there are times in the life of the church where the church will endure and have to address individuals who are seeking actively to divide the church. To turn people against each other. Paul's image, I've done it before, but it's that stirring, that stirring the pot. I don't know where I've heard that. I, I heard that growing up. Maybe my mom said it a lot, but stirring the pot, right? Being a pot stirrer. In verse 10 it says, for a person who stirs up division... After, Paul says, warning him once, and then warning then twice, this shows kind of the patience and love we have here, that we warn once, we warn twice. Again, goes back to where we started in this letter, that our call is to both proclaim and protect the gospel. This is protecting the gospel, and it's so important because the one stirring up must be addressed and warned. The gospel is at stake. The church is at stake. Unity is at stake. However, there will be times, as this letter says, when even after that warning, after being addressed, the individual does not listen but keeps dividing. So now Paul gives a really hard word. Hard word. Um, Paul says, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is a hard word. Hard word. And as hard as it is for us to hear that in our culture today, as hard as it is, it would have been harder in the ancient city of Crete. What I mean by that is, is there are so many churches in our city, most of which you don't even know about. You don't even know they exist. Believers gathering in congregations all over our city. In our culture today, we're able to kind of like whoop, hop into this one, hop into that one. There's even a term called church hopping or church shopping or whatever that that you can literally kind of float and not connect anywhere. In our culture today, we can be a part of this one, then part of that one, and in many ways we can kind of push the reset button every time we do it. We start over, we start fresh. We can leave this place, step into another, start fresh. But here's the thing. That was not the case in the ancient city of Crete and in this ancient church. In other words, Paul is not saying have nothing more to do with them and let them go to the church down the street. No. No, it's way more difficult than that. In here, it's, there was no other church across the street. There was no first, second, third Baptist. There was one. Uno. Uno. One. There was one. So consider then the weight of these words. Have nothing more to do with them. It's a huge statement. And it should not be made lightly. Why would Paul make such a big statement here? Because this matters. Division is destructive, it will destroy the church from the inside. And Paul, understanding the seriousness of this, says, we must not have any more to do with them. They are like a destructive wildfire. Do not fuel, do not fan, do not warm your hands. Have nothing more to do. And then Paul adds, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, identifying the sin here, and then he adds, he is self-condemned. This is a really powerful statement to understand. Self condemned. Condemned here is a word meaning to pronounce the sentence after you've been found to be guilty, to pronounce the sentence. It's to pronounce a sentence. So if you think about this, for those who are guilty of stirring up division, Paul says they pronounce their own sentence upon their heads. They pronounce their own sentence, that that they now experience the division, the division from the body, their church family, that that sentence has been self-pronounced. The technical way is they sleep in the bed that they themselves made. It's what Paul is driving out here, self-condemned. And after years of ministry, I have seen this play out. When there is division, there's someone stirring it up, listen, that road does not lead to happiness, fulfillment, or joy. It leads to brokenness, discontentment, and bitterness. It is a self-pronounced sentence. So Paul says, insist on the gospel and avoid division. As we take in the fullness of this letter, The gospel matters. The truth matters. The way you live your life in light of the gospel matters greatly. The way you live your life in the church, in your home, in the community, in your schools, in your offices, it matters. Paul says insist on these things. Insist on the gospel, the truth of God. Insist on the gospel so that we are able to walk together in the light of the gospel, and avoid division, that we would not fan it, fuel it, or warm our hands in it, that we would avoid division, that we would avoid the divider, the one who divides, because unity in the gospel matters. So I want us to close this morning, and I just want to challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and life, to do a little self-inventory. Are you insisting, Are you insisting? Are you insisting? Are you living your life in light of the gospel, calling those around you to do the same? Specifically, how are you insisting? I pray that the Spirit will convict and reveal the ways that we have been ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed of living it. That rather than insisting on the gospel in our community, we run away or we run from the world. Or on the other side, instead of insisting in our community, we just become just like the world and we run into the world. Are you insisting? And the second question, are you avoiding? Avoiding division. Actively avoiding division. And I, again, I just pray that the Lord would begin to reveal the way that we have not avoided, but have fueled or fanned or warmed our hands. We are united by the gospel of Christ together. So insist and avoid. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Titus. We're grateful for this letter. It is so timely. Um, Lord, but... Your word is true, it is profitable, it is good. So, before we insist out there, Lord, we, uh, we insist in here. We stand boldly on your word and your commands. Lord, we stand boldly on them. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us. I, would, I pray first that you would help us as we seek to... Proclaim the gospel and insist out there in our community, in our offices, in our homes, where you have placed us. And I pray at the same time that you would give us the ability and the courage to avoid, to avoid division. To have the wisdom to see, the eyes to see, that we can fight together for unity in the gospel. Whatever that unity is, racial socioeconomic age, whatever our differences are, differences in opinion, whatever they are, that we would come together as the body of Christ in unity and that we would actively avoid division. Lord, would you help us as we walk this out? In Jesus' name, amen.